0: On a sunny afternoon on August 23rd, 1973, Hans-Erik Olsen walked into this building in Stockholm, Sweden. With an accomplice beside him, he brandished his weapon and he proceeded to hold up this bank. The robbery got botched. Pretty soon, police and squads got called in. Snipers were on rooftops. It was a standoff. In an act of desperation, Olson takes four employees of the bank, brings them down into the vault and begins a six-day standoff with four hostages negotiating back and forth with the powers that be. The funniest thing was is that when this incident finally all ends and it comes out and he's arrested and taken out in handcuffs, something has transpired between This criminal who walked into the building and the people that he has enslaved for these six days. Not only do they go forward to actually defend him in front of the police and begin to believe that the police themselves are their enemy. They actually would not testify against him in court. They began to raise money for his defense. And years after the fact continue to speak in defense of him and his actions. Six days after the incident, a psychiatrist by the name of Nils Bijero described what happened inside their minds as Stockholm Syndrome. This is the definition of Stockholm Syndrome Stockholm Syndrome, or capture bonding, is a psychological phenomenon in which hostages express empathy and sympathy and have positive feelings toward their captors, sometimes to the point of defending. And identifying with them. Sometimes even going so far as to fall in love with them. And empathy. And identifying with. And affection for. What a bizarre thing. For all of you psych minds in the room. DSM does not actually categorize. Stockholm Syndrome, but the FBI has taken a keen interest in it and put a lot of research and money behind it in the past years and have concluded that 8% of all people in hostage situations end up doing something that kind of resembles some form of Stockholm Syndrome. It's bizarre, isn't it? The FBI says 8% of all people taken captive become victims of Stockholm Syndrome, I think a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome exists in the American church today to a much higher percentage, where our imaginations and our hearts and our dreams and our ambitions and our finances and our loves have become co-opted. They've become taken over by our captors. They belong to our culture. Our culture and the world around us and our sinful desires begins to own them, and the very thing that has enslaved us we've begun to fall in love with. And we want to believe that we can still claim our Christianity and define ourselves as a follower of Christ. And yet live in both worlds at the same time. We want to claim an independence and an allegiance to Christ. And we want to also acknowledge the fact that, well, we've fallen in love with our captor as well. And he owns our ambitions. And he owns so much of what we believe will make us happy over the course of our life. Of course, we're not new to this game. This has been happening to God's people from the very beginning. God creates them. God creates a world of grace open before them. And time and time again, we sort of slide off the edge and find ourselves preoccupied, wandering off the path with things all around us, enamored by them, and turning them into our gods instead. The story of Noah in scripture is the first example of this. Joseph has experiences the same thing. God says to Moses when he's out with the people, Let them all go. I'll start over again just with you because the people have just completely sold me out even after I've delivered them. Happens with Caleb and Joshua again. Happens throughout the judges where there's the critical mass of the nation and the people who have been called to be a light to the nation slides away from their appointed position in the world. They are no longer the priesthood of all believers. But they are the adulterers of the world instead. Elijah asks the same question as the prophet. Is there anybody else left? And beginning in this process, we see that even when God's people sell out, even when God's people have sold out from themselves and the task that he's given us, that God will not be deterred in his redemption plan for creation by the end of the book of Genesis, a new word emerges. It begins to become a sub theme throughout the Old Testament. This idea of the remnant. Genesis has this book, tw- this word occurred 21 times before the prophets, this idea of God preserving a remnant comes about. And then 61 times within the prophetic books, this term comes back again and again and again as God will not be deterred. My people might sell out, but I will always preserve something that will hold true for me. I will always preserve my mission in the world through some. And notice too that the remnant are not the people who are necessarily better. They are the people that God has preserved. God's plans will not be thwarted for our redemption, regardless of our best efforts to sell ourselves out time and time again. The remnant is not better, they're just claimed by God. Now, as the Old Testament progresses, we end up in this period that we've been studying all semester these books of the prophets. If you take all the books that come pre-exile, during the exile, and after the exile, this is actually the event that is written about more than even the Gospels put together. This is a huge, just massive issue for the people of God. What will they do in the middle of this? How will they respond? Leading up to it, as the prophets come and say, an exile, a captivity is coming. If you do not turn, this is what's going to happen. But God loves his people so much that even when we sell him out, he will rattle our cage so hard, he will not leave us alone. He comes for us, and he comes for us again. And the the prophet set up the exile not as a punitive, angry judgment of a vindictive God, but rather one whose patience is hitting to the point where he says, I just, I don't know what else I need to do with you people. I don't know how else to capture your hearts again. And this restorative process is what the exile is supposed to bring about. And the idea within this is that God would let somebody come in, they would take the Israelites captive, and then coming back out of captivity, ah, back out of the exile, they would come back renewed and refined in this process. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 BC, and the south to Babylon in 587. And in this process, the question the prophets begin to ask is will there be a remnant left? Who will remain? Who will actually come back? Not just physically come back out of Babylon. Who will come back with all of their heart to the Lord? We have a bad case of Stockholm Syndrome and cultural Christianity, a lukewarmness to the way our faith manifests itself too often. And I think the question needs to be asked of us in the same way it was for all of these pages of Scripture within the prophets. Are you wholly mine? I know you go to worship, and I know the songs come off your mouth, but are you letting me have your whole heart? I don't want just a name. I don't want just an offering in the offering plate. I want you because that's what I made you for. I want all of you. And as the pages of Scripture continue to turn, the warning keeps going. The Jewish people that Jesus encounters have have given him a certain pattern within the malaise of their lives and the repetition of these behaviors that have become empty. And he's calling them to something more than that. Not just a a behavioral obedience, but a captive imagination and heart. He wants everything, all of them. Heart, soul, mind, strength. That's what this was all about, Jesus says, when he summarizes every one of God's instructions for mankind. And the pages keep turning. And we keep being asked the question, even in the beginning of the last book of the Bible. Being called out for being lukewarm. One more time again. For those of you who were in gift on Sunday night, our gift speaker stood on this stage, called us out for the same thing, didn't he? And said, I'm sorry, I'm gonna offend some of you by this. And then he went on to say something that was kind of jarring, sounded very prophetic. He said, Stop pissing around with God. Something inside of me at the time was like, Ooh, you can't say that. But I think a lot of the kings thought the same thing when the prophets would come before them and say the same thing in one way or another. The purpose of the prophet was to jar the people of God out of their malaise, out of their apathy, out of their indifference, out of their empty patterns of behavior to an all-of-life involvement in God, to a wholehearted surrender. That's the call. That's what they're doing the entire time. Too often today, we want to take prophecy and make it be about that what the people of God point a finger at culture and say about them. Prophecy, primarily in the Bible, is not about what the people of God are doing to point fingers at the world around them. Prophecy is when a man of God or a woman of God in the Old Testament stands before the people of God and says, You have failed in this regard. And it's holding us to account. It's putting our feet to the fire. And so when our gift speaker says that, when the prophets say that kind of stuff, they're calling us, slapping us upside the face a little bit, saying, I didn't just want part of you. I came for all of you. And the question we need to ask ourselves, that the Israelites need to ask themselves, is did the exile take? Did it refine us to the point that we were supposed to? Or are we still kind of sold out and stuck in? What our minds and our hearts and our imaginations have been taken captive of by the culture around us. In the last pages of scripture, the warning still rings. God is still calling his people out, calling them out of Babylon. You see, physically they left Babylon and came back to Israel, but they didn't really come back. Babylon is described in the book of Revelation as the prostitute. It's the symbol for all the ways that we've sold ourselves out, that we've adulterated ourselves, that We've slept with the world. From chapter 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For she has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. Hear the language coming out of that in verse 4. Come out of her, my people. The exile didn't take. It didn't work. Our hearts are still divided. Come out of her, my people. And in typical prophetic fashion, listen to the shocking language that is in this. the, The sexual metaphor here. Come out of her. Come out of the whore of Babylon, my people. Once again, the prophetic language sort of shocks us again. God trying to rattle our cage and capture our attention, saying, I made you to have your whole heart within me. And you will not be alive unless you do. As we get to the book of Zephaniah now, as we move through the minor prophets, once again, it's the same pattern of this harsh, strong rhetoric of judgment over God's people. For all the things that they have done, and yet the promises now begin to start coming to the forefront too, that I will accomplish my goal. I will save my people. I will wake you up from your lukewarmness. I will preserve a remnant. And notice every time this language happens, God is taking the action upon himself. I will do this. Not you miserable people, you need to do this. But God's saying, I will do this. I will fulfill my faithfulness. This will rest upon my character. It will be upon me, and I will accomplish this. Listen to all the things he puts upon himself as the book of Zephaniah closes. From chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. Because I will remove from you those who revel in your glory. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Not part of your heart still captivated by Babylon. Not part of your heart still divided for the things of this world. A whole heart. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, Dort College. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing. You hear all the verbs in this that God has put upon himself? I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all those who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune before your eyes, says the Lord. I will take great delight in you. Even in the midst of God's words of concern and warning, which seem at first, let's not lose the forest to the trees in all of this prophecy. God is not just angry. God is delighting in his people and calling us to obedience. When you picture God in his call over you, you picture one who delights. When you see God in your mind's eye when you pray, is he smiling upon you? Is he delighting in you? Is he singing over you? Is he rejoicing in what he has done in you? And in the midst of this, the only thing he's asking back for is a whole heart. Just give me your whole heart. I want all of you. Put an offering in the plate, yes, but put all of you on the altar. Just give me your dreams. Give me all the things you long for. Give me your desires and your loves. I want to be all of this for you. i are going to ask the band to come on up, and we're going to kind of close this and what I wanted to do in this time as we finish your chapel time today is God is delighting over us these ideas that God is singing over us, God is delighting in his people some of you won't know this song and I just want this to sort of be this space where you can respond and whatever is being provoked within you, whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to you in the middle of of, of, I want your whole heart, I want all of you, I need your idols to fall, I want all of your imagination I want your hopes and your dreams what does it look like What are the parts of your heart that are not yet fully surrendered? I want to let you hear the Spirit tell you that in this time. If you want to sing along, feel free to sing. If you want this just sung over you, let it sing over you. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, you ask for our whole hearts, and yet we've sold them out at too cheap of a price for too many things in this world. Claim us back. Father, heal us from our lukewarmness. Save us from the places where we have not trusted in you, but in ourselves and the things of this world. Father, slaughter our idols. and at any and every cost, may we be holy and entirely yours. In this moment, I know that you are asking us to lay down things that we have held on to too long. Allow us to put our whole hearts. All our heart in you. Father, will you hear our prayer?